Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 3rd, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot give you personal investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay. Starting off this week, uh, first slide here, I put here, you know, uh, this tweet by Alex White, I thought it was kind of cheeky, but if you didn't realize, if you didn't know, the president of Luke Oil took a header out of a hospital window, supposedly he fell out of the window to his death, I don't know what really happened, a lot of people seem to have weird ways of dying in Russia, but that's, uh, you know, that's how it is. Anyways, Alex White says, Gazprom announcing that Nord Stream 1 has fallen out of a hospital window. (laughs) The cheekiness is here, but I guess his, what he's, you know, what he's saying here is, you know, uh, people don't fall out of windows. Uh, Luke Oil Board of Directors and stuff has been critical of the special military operation. And so whether or not the chairman or the president, whatever he is, fell out the window or was thrown out the window. We don't know. But it's the same thing with Nord Stream 1 now. Is This is the pipeline that supplies gas to the EU or to Germany. Um, it's down indefinitely because of a issue with the turbine, supposedly oil leaking into control areas. I don't know. I saw the pictures. It was hard for me without Looks like a connection box. I don't know what's really going on. It doesn't seem to be, you know, without having more, inf- somebody would have stepped back three feet and took a picture. And then I'd probably be able to tell a little bit more, but who knows? These are excuses. There's an economic war going on uh, between the EU and Russia. You can expect this. This is what we did expect. This is what we forecasted. As we get closer to the winter, expect to see more. And of course, you know, the Europeans are pushing forward with their oil price cap, which they feel will work. I've seen a lot of analysis on both sides that it won't work. It will work. I'm not qualified enough to say what will happen. I will say, though, that to this point, the economic sanctions and uh, schemes that the EU has tried to economically damage Russia uh, to this point don't appear to be that effective. I'll leave it at that. Maybe this will be. I will say say that the Russians have said that they will not sell oil to people that are instituting price caps. And then if you look at some of the analysis of what comes from that, like uh, uh, I think it was Goldman, yeah, um, did some analysis on it. And if this oil price scheme goes through, they're they're saying $150 a barrel. Um, Remember, the Saudis maybe are out of OPEC's out of spare capacity. We actually had Macron even say that to Biden. If you heard that hot mic, Biden was told that when he went to Saudi. So I think people need to be careful here because we may be digging a hole deeper. But we'll we will see. We will have to see uh, what will happen as we go into the winter. Um, and choking yourself off from more oil. This is like Janet Yellen's scheme. I'm not, never really was impressed with Janet Yellen when she was in the Fed. And I'm certainly not impressed with her as a treasury secretary. But these people all have PhDs and I'm just a guy on the internet. So 
I will uh, reserve judgment. These are, you know, my betters educational wise. And I'm sure they have thought it all out and schemed it all out. You know, there's like 10,000 PhDs at the Fed. So, and they spend, they, I think the salaries are in the billions and I'm quite sure they know what they're doing. <clears throat> Here's a tweet from Jim Rickards, Gazprom, which is the big, huge conglomerate, gas conglomerate in Russia. Uh, the Russian natural gas company just declared a record dividend. Western investors won't receive it because their shares were frozen by sanctions and Russia was banned from the global payment system. Under Biden, Russia prospers, America suffers. Not just Biden, it's the entire West. Yeah, I was a shareholder of Gazprom for many, many years. Um, they always paid their dividends. They were very high. No problem. Um, what's interesting is, is they had not had a record, only a record dividend, they had a record uh, earnings also. Uh, even if the gas flows are down, the prices are up. So that works. That works also. So there you go. I mean, we see more and more this type of news. And, you know, unless you have cognitive distance, you have to say, well, is what we're doing working? And uh, I don't know. To this point, I would say no. But uh, again, I'm just a guy on the Internet. But we can't deny you know, as Ian Rand said, you can deny reality, but you cannot deny the consequences of denying reality. So, or ignore the consequences of denying reality. So, or something to that effect. Not that I'm a big Ian Rand fan, but, you know, I like to quote people. And that's a good quote. It makes sense. And so I think that, as we've said before, the political class in the West did not foresee that their plan may not work. It doesn't seem to be working. And so now the consequences are starting to build. The ramifications, the second and third order issues are starting to surface as a result of the, in my view, ill-conceived sanction regime. But we'll see. Again, here we go. German industry begins to shut down. Eurozone inflation surged to another record high in August, fueled by soaring energy prices that are threatening to plunge the region into recession. Not threatening to, the region is in recession. It came as German manufacturers started to shut down factories as they struggled to cope with soaring energy prices. Robert Abick, Germany's economy minister and big green guy. I'm not, just let me make a comment right here. I'm not convinced that Robert Habeck isn't necessarily pleased that this is happening. You know, there the Greens, I don't think they have as a stated policy, but I don't think that they're aghast that a, if a deindustrialization of Germany takes place as a result of a secondary effect of this. I don't know for sure, but I, I, I just, I'm just speculating. Said the country's industrial producers have been trying to slash gas consumption by switching to alternative fuels and reducing output. Yeah, they're switching to oil. Uh, they're switching to coal where they can and reducing output. Well, if you reduce output, that reduces, you know, your ability to stay in business. These are fixed cost businesses. If you reduce your output to a certain point and energy price, prices are going up, at some point it's not economically viable to, to stay in business. You have a lot of fixed costs and then you have these variable inputs of fuel, which are just overwhelming the rest of your cost structure. But, you know, guys like this, Hobbit, Schultz, they don't have any background in this, so they don't know, okay? The, the political class in the EU, 
really does think that it can just issue proclamations and everything will happen because they issued the proclamation. And I don't say that to be sarcastic. That's really, I think, what they think there. And uh, it's now reality is coming to bear. Goes on, but he said some had stopped production altogether, a move he branded alarming. You don't say. And so this is starting to build week after week, folks. We keep reporting this. At some point, you get to a tipping point where, you know, you're going to keep laying people off. You're going to, this stuff starts building. Then the, the burden to the state to provide unemployment benefits, all these benefits, that's what they're saying. So the point of the question you have, one has to ask themselves is, is the runway, you know, the EU has burdened itself now with, think of it like a plane taking off that's overweight and you just keep adding weight to it. And you've got the engines on full bore and you're trying to take off and you keep adding more and more weight to the plane that's already overloaded. Are you going to be able to take off? Or are you going to crash at the end of the runway? That's what's happening here. They're running out of runway. You know, they are all in, you know, they have the, current offensive, whether what you think, what's the current news that's going on in southern Ukraine, is that the last roll of the dice? If it doesn't work, if it doesn't push the Russians back, what's the game plan? We're going to go into winter. Are we just going to sit there as a stalemate? And we're going to, you know, Biden's going to send another 13 billion there. We're going to see, continue to watch week after week, month after month, EU industry shut down and the unemployment rates start going up. People's standard of living going down, real fear that people will not have enough, people have real fear in the modern Western countries that they will not have enough heat for the winter or food. What's the plan? Add more baggage to the plane, you're already at, and you can't take off and you're running out of runway. At some point, there's going to be a smash. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know when that smash is. How much runway is left? That's the question. And I'm not, they're not going to shut the engines down. They're not going to reverse gear. They're not going to look for an off-ramp. And here's why. Here's the German finance or uh, foreign minister, Annalena Baerbach. I will put a link to this video. And she, she was asked about this. And here's what she said. She said, I will put Ukraine first no matter what my German voters think. This is what the woman said. We will not abandon Ukraine. We will put them first above the German voters, and I don't care what the German voters think. This is what she said. Now, I don't know if, you know, if this was a deliberate or she wasn't thinking or it slipped out. Sometimes this happens. I don't think she misspoke, though. I mean, you look at somebody like Boris Johnson. He's all in. It cost him his uh, prime ministership. What's going to happen here? They're telling you there is no there is no off ramp. There is no reverse gear. We're not backing down, and yet the economic consequences are building. And at some point, those become social consequences and in my mind, political consequences. Here we go, Belgian companies shutting down. You know, I know people are getting sick of this, but I'm trying to show you week after week what's happening. 
several companies in Belgium have been forced to shut down their production facilities due to high energy prices, meaning thousands of employees are currently temporarily out of a job. In many cases, folks are not temporarily out of a job. Sometimes when you shut a facility down, it doesn't get restarted. Or the, the, the manufacturing gets moved somewhere else, or it's, it's a line that you were, it, maybe it's a line of products that you were thinking about that was low margin anyways, and you were thinking about getting rid of, and this gives you an excuse. You know, you have very stringent labor laws and things like this in Europe. I'm not, certainly not familiar, familiar with all of them, but say you had a low margin business that you kind of wanted to get rid of anyways, this gives you your excuse. You shut it down, you never have to restart it again. You write it off. There will be a certain percentage of that going on. Article goes on, stainless steel producer Apram, Apram, I don't know how to pronounce these French names, is shutting down its production facility in Genk due to the high energy prices. While fertilizer producer Yara and flooring group Bellilu are also winding down operations. Peter Klaas, director of Febeliek, the umbrella organization of energy intensive companies, lobbying group, fears that Apiram and Yara will not be the only companies that will have to halt production because they can no longer compete in international markets. The gas price in Belgium is now 10 times higher than the US. And so we've showed you, and you've seen it yourself, the anecdotes, people on Twitter or various other social media holding up their, I mean, these are business owners, holding up their energy bills from last year and now this year, and they're 10 times more. And then they just, you know, some of these people are like, the energy cost is more than my revenue. I, I can't stay in business. And so it's not just large companies, it's small and medium-sized businesses, you know, that are owned by people people with families, people that work there have families, sometimes multi-generational. So what does that do to a community? We see that, we saw what happened. You know, I've said this many times before, I've traveled throughout the whole Rust Belt. I've worked there putting up these renewable projects in these small towns, in these rural areas, or these one factory towns that shut down in the 70s. I've never recovered. Population goes down. I mean, I go, I, I was struck that I would go to a grocery store in rural Illinois and the people just didn't look well. They looked depressed. They looked unhealthy. It just, the, the people sitting around on their porches, uh, doing nothing all day in the middle of the day, because there's no opportunity. The place is gutted. And so this is why I talk about the social costs of these things. Is this worth, you know, fighting about in a country that most people in Europe didn't really care about six months ago? I don't know. Evidently, people, based on the communications I get, <coughs> many people in Europe are aghast that this is happening, but there is a large contingent of people that write me and chastise me and tell me I don't get it, and they're all for this. So I don't know. We'll see. Here's the Belgian PM. Uh, I guess this is his platform uh, for the next, you know, telling the Belgian citizens to expect five to 10 years of hardship. He's going to run on that. I don't know. PM Alexander de Croo, he just happens to be a WEF global young leader, 
has warned the country faces long-term economic hardship due to soaring energy costs. Here's a quote. The next five to 10 winters will be difficult. A very difficult situation is developing throughout Europe, unquote. This is their new normal. Yeah, because I've just, as I've said before, there's no reverse gear. There's no off-ramp. There's no even hint of reconciliation or talks to bring this thing to an end and get back to some type of normalcy. And as I've stated before, I think people are going to be surprised, even if the political class, even if the politi politicians change. I'm not sure that in the case of like the larger countries in Europe, like Germany, that the Russians are going to be really hip to going back to the old normal. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that here because it just causes a lot of people to get upset when I say certain things. So um, I'm just telling you that uh, I'm not sure it's going to, you know, the shift to the multipolar world, the view that a lot of people in Russia had that they wanted to more integrate with Europe. And there were a lot of people like that, including Mr. Putin, by the way. If you choose to go back in time and look at some of the things that he did, I mean, he actually wanted to join NATO at one point. Okay, there he he actually, in the context relative to a lot of people in in Russia, is a moderate. Believe me, folks, there are a lot of people that are a lot hard, more hardcore than him, and a lot wilder. Let's put it that way. And so, they never could get this reproachment for whatever reason. I'm not going to get into the reasons why I did that before when I thought a little bit about that and people got upset, but those are the facts. And now if you read like the uh, address that he made to, I think it was August 16th to the, they had a military conference from like 10 different countries. And it's just the speech that he gave to the people that were attending. I mean, Russia setting the course for a multipolar world uh, and shifting to East, the East, you know, Russia is unique in the countries in Europe is it has one foot in Europe and one in Asia. It's a Eurasian country. And I think that's part of the problem. But I think that they're going to kind of give up on a lot of the Western European countries. I think they're, you know, they're still cutting deals with the Eastern European countries. Hungary signed a deal with Gazprom. They're going to have plenty of gas. Um, they'll be fine through the winter. And I think more countries are going to do that in Central Europe. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm not a, I don't have a crystal ball, but this is part of, like I said, the political turmoil that we're going to experience this decade. And if this guy is running on this, this, this guy here, so what is the deal here? Are you running on this, on this platform that you're telling everybody that their, their life's going to be difficult for the next five to 10 years? People are not going to, maybe they're going to cancel elections. So he doesn't care. I don't know. I mean, this is not stuff that I would say, or like, um, Baerbach was talking about, you know, that there's no reverse gear and she's going to put the interests of foreigners above her own people. That's crazy. So maybe they don't plan on having elections ever again. So they can just say whatever they want. I don't, I don't know. But this is uh, it's bizarre. And so not everybody's insane. Uh, like I said, in the Central European countries, they don't like being called Eastern European. They prefer to be called Central European. But regardless, there's reasons for that too, but I'm not going to get into it. But uh, here's the Croatian president. The result of, this is his words, not mine, stupid EU politics that aren't in the interest in any, of any of us. This is what he said, the result of stupid EU politics that aren't in the interests of any of us, but that roped us in anyway. He predicts EU members will split and go on to secure their own energy interests out of necessity as Russia continues to win. That's what he said. 
So, you know, this is what I've been predicting is going to happen. Uh, it's obvious. The political class in some of these countries is, you know, on a suicide mission, you know, Western Europeans. And a lot of these smaller countries, they can't afford to go along with this. They're not going to. And so this is going to call a, cause a rift. And that's why you're seeing, that's why you're conveniently seeing now the rules starting to get changed. Schultz, Olaf Schultz proposed recently, uh, currently, I think the way the rules are set up in the EU, all the member states have to agree. One, one member state can veto policies. That's something that Hungary was doing, which was aggravating a lot of people in France and Germany because they weren't going along with this proposition 100%. And so they were vetoing some of the policies. So now the, the, the deal is, well, what's, I can't remember exactly. It was certainly like on trade and other things few other things just to start that the EU wants to Schultz was saying that the EU needs to move to a majority vote situation and uh, you know so that we can't have just these he didn't call them rogue but he, you know these outliers scuttling these policies so much for you know so what would be the interests of these people like Hungary or the Central Europeans to stay in this this suicide pact they're not going to and that's why that's why I keep saying this you know, I was listening to a Twitter spaces the other day with some very well thought of prestigious speakers. Let's put it that way. People that if I mention their name, they'd be very highly recognized by listeners here. And I was shocked at the, at the view. Um, one of the speakers said that the good thing to come out of this was the amount of EU solidarity. Really? What, what are you talking about? And the view that, you know, they're going to hold the course and see this through and we're all going to be better for it. I was shocked. Um, and so that's what makes the market, right? Different ideas. But I was just shocked that a lot of people, I think, you know, the, I, I fully admit that I could be wrong. I didn't get a sense from these people that they thought they were wrong. That actually that Russia could be winning in Ukraine, that Russia could have the upper hand on the on Europe because of its uh, ability to control energy. That didn't even come into the context. They admitted that, you know, yes, uh, it's just a matter of time before, you know, the military situation resolves in Ukraine's favor. So we just have to see this through. That's not what's happening. At best, it's a stalemate. At worst, the Russians continue to advance. Those are the facts. They're not in dispute. The counteroffensive is, is, is a disaster that the, the Ukrainians have had over the last three or four days. No air cover, outgunned on artillery, no counter battery fire. I mean, it's not going to work. You don't have to be a military genius. You cannot assault across open step with no cover and not have any kind of air cover. That's crazy. No, who would have advised that? But we'll see. I could be wrong. We'll have to wait for the effect. So a lot of people, I think, in the West, especially people that are counseling people, are suggesting that, you know, this will resolve uh, itself with the Ukrainian victory. And then, uh, you know, we just need to see this through. And I think that's what the policymakers in the EU, 
especially in the larger countries in Western Europe, uh, that's their view and they're sticking to it as the entire edifice of their economies collapses around them. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Okay, getting back to some actionable stuff about the energy markets. Hottest commodity. The hottest commodity in the oil industry isn't crude, gasoline, diesel, or jet fuel, nor is it an exotic petroleum feedstock used to make plastics. The hottest commodity goes by the acronym OCTG, meaning oil country tubular goods, a verbose way to say drill pipe. The benchmark price for drill pipe has surged to a record $4,100 per short ton, a 90% increase from $2,300 a year ago. The bounce may not be as high as some others in the oil industry, but it matters more because of the spillover effect. Rising drill pipe price means America shale drillers are increasing production more slowly than expected. And that in turn means higher oil prices worldwide. First, there's the supply. American steel makers are struggling to raise production in the face of high energy costs. Wow, where have we heard that before? In the past, Russia sent a large chunk of its OCTG exports to the US, but that flow has stopped since Moscow invaded Ukraine. Russia's steel pipe suppliers accounted last year for more than a fifth of global OCTG supply, according to Rystad Energy Consultancy. <clears throat> you know, we were told that when the Western help pulls out of Russia, it's going to collapse. Um, I'm talking about their oil industry. They're not technical people. They can't do this on their own. And yet they were supplying 20% of the seamless oil seamless pipe supply to the world and people in the US were buying it. The Russians are backwards. They're taking chips out of washing machines for their defense industry, but yet everybody rides the Soyuz to the space station. So, you know, we have advanced fighter aircraft and fighter bomber capabilities, precision guided weapons that we've seen demonstrated, but yet they're backwards. I, I don't, what I, the, the thing that bothers me about this is everything that I'm being told doesn't match what I see in here. And so if you take 20% of the supply off the market, prices go up. And so this goes into the calculation of whether or not to drill a well. What's my cost against my anticipated payback so I can get this well to pay out? How long is it going to take this well to pay out? And then what's my anticipated ultimate recovery? And then what's my return on investment? And so these calculations take place. So again, another example, you know, somebody asked me about drill pipe, here you go. It's not just drill pipe, it's sand, fracking sand, it's people, it's transportation, everything in the oil patch is constricted. You know, we just came out of the, one of the worst oil field depressions in history. So the entire industry has shrunk, it's atrophied like muscles that haven't been used. And so it takes time, a lot of time and money to rebuild that up. And it's not just the cost of drill pipe, folks. The, there's no interest with a lot of these companies increasing production like people think they should. They did that. The drill baby drill thing is over with. It's the current commission to these managements of these oil exploration production companies is return cash flow, pay down debt, and return cash to shareholders. That's what they're doing. I've talked about this before. Oil boom moves offshore. Here's another article from Reuters. 
Global oil companies are pumping billions of dollars into offshore drilling, reversing a long decline in spending on the decade-long projects, including some of the remote iceberg waters off Canada's Atlantic coast. Producing offshore projects average a break-even price of $18 per barrel of oil equivalent, compared with $28 per barrel onshore, according to Rystad. The energy transition should take <coughs> 20 to 30 years. It will be difficult to eliminate oil. Europe's energy crisis is a reminder of that. And so the reason I put this on here is because I'm very, very bullish on oil field services, particularly offshore oil. If you want to talk about decimation of an industry, not just oil field services, but the offshore oil field services were completely decimated. Many, many bankruptcies, shrink, many companies shrinking their, their headcount, their, their capabilities. And now we don't need a massive investment boom for these companies to boom because they're so, they've, they've shrunk so much that they're coming off a substantially smaller base. And so we're seeing that. I listened to a lot of the conference calls for many of the uh, offshore oil field services companies. And I keep hearing things like recoveries in effect, it is in process, uh, order book is up, raising guidance, forward guidance for the rest of the year and into 2023, orders are up, that kind of stuff. And you're seeing the results, sales, revenue, cash flows are up. Same thing that you're seeing in EMP, debt being paid back, and return of capital to shareholders is being contemplated. So, you know, if you look at something like the most modern drill ships, they're like 100% sold out right now. <clears throat> you can't get one. And so, you know, there's not going to be a building boom. So, what's happening? The day rates for these rigs is, are going up. Consequently, the recovery and revenue and cash flow is happening at these companies. This will eventually be recognized by the market. You know, this is incumbent upon the oil price cooperating, but like I said, in the short term, can oil drop to $60 a barrel? I guess, I don't know. Um, with all the things being thrown at it, the fact that it's still held up should be telling you something that if we ever do get a turnaround in economic activity, I mean, it's just gonna go nuts. China comes out of its lockdowns, uh, you know, eventually countries leave recession and go into expansion again or recover from their recessions. And, you know, there's simply, as I've said before, a shortage of molecules around the world. And the investment has been insufficient, as we've said before. So here's discussion about the Sprott Uranium Trust. The fact that Sput alone has removed nearly 40 million pounds of uranium from the market, much of which was likely overhanging inventory, means that we are now in a very different situation from when Sput was initiated. Had anyone told us in early 2021 that 1.8 billion in new money would enter the physical uranium market on the buy side, we would have said this was a game changer, and it clearly was. Whether there is another 1 billion or more in additional cash that will flow into the spot market, especially at a similar rapid pace to late 21, early 22, remains to be seen. At the same time, it is also unclear whether there is sufficient spot uranium available to accommodate an influx of another $1 billion in purchases. This is from uh, UXC, which is a consultancy for the uranium industry. I don't know the answer to this. Um, 
I see that the uranium price is spot price, at least is going up. You know, I go back to what uh, Tim Geitzel has recently said, that this is the best uranium market that he's seen in 40 years of his career. Um, they're signing contracts. They're bringing MacArthur River, Key Lake back uh, slowly but surely. Um, and we continue to see positive news around the world for more reactors being built, more extensions. I see Diablo Canyon in California got extended. Uh, this is all positive. Now, I did hear through the grapevine, I wasn't able to verify it for this uh, video. You know, I reported last week that the Japanese prime minister said that there's going to be a big push in Japan for nuclear to be restarted there. But then I heard through the grapevine, but I couldn't verify it, that he had to walk Bell's comments back. I don't know what's going on. It doesn't matter. In the long term, uh, many developing countries, other countries, I mean, people are getting the message that in order to electrify, you're not going to be able to do it solely with um, renewables. It's just not going to happen. So nuclear has to be part of that equation if you want to get rid of coal and natural gas electricity production. And this is why the rebuildable revolution is, is going to get stuck in the mud. Copper production is down for this year. Look at these companies. Uh, Glencore, Cadelco, Lundin, Asarco, Valet. These are all ma major uh, mining companies and their copper production is down. This is not what we need to see. You know, I'm going to put a link to a video. I put it on the website. Uh, a a presentation was given by a guy who's an associate professor at Queensland University, and he was talking about this exact thing, some similar what Mark Mills has talked about, which is the availability of the materials for this transition simply don't exist in the quantities that are going to be necessary. This is a spreadsheet exercise, folks. It's not me saying that because I'm against re rebuildables, or I want to goof on renewables, or I'm a shill for the fossil fuel industry. These are facts. And you cannot, it, it's mind boggling that people won't look at this. So copper is one of the main metals that is needed for this energy transition and the production is going down. How do you have a transition if you don't have the material? You know, during that lecture I was talking about or presentation, one of the key things I took out of that, two key things. Number one was, and I'll put the link, you can watch it for yourself. It's like an hour and a half. I suggest you watch it. It's very informative. Two key things. Number one, when you do the math and just use conservative numbers, the amount of material needed just for the first generation of this transition, that means to fully do what everybody wants, what these policymakers want to do for the first generation. Because remember, these machines, these devices don't last forever. They have to be eventually replaced. That's why I call it rebuildables. Wind turbine is rotating machinery. It doesn't just going to operate forever. It wears out. Same thing with solar panels. They degrade over time. They have to be replaced. Just to do the first generation, which gets you maybe 20 years of production, the materials needed to do that first generation transition fully exceed all known reserves for those metals. So do you understand that, what that means? It's not going to happen, especially in the context of declining production. Okay, 
it's not going to have the metals do not exist to do a full transition. It's not going to happen. That's why hydrocarbons are going to be around for decades. That is why it's an investment opportunity. This is why it's so lucrative. This is why I talk about heads we win, tails we win more. Yes, the political class is going to push forward with the transition. You'll make money on that because you need copper. It doesn't exist. The copper price will go up. Another thing that people don't understand is a lot of this manufacturing and metal processing, not just the ore. Okay, you can dig up copper in or different materials in different countries, but most of the processing, smelting, these fabrication, that's done in China. And we're trying to like do what? We're trying to start a war with them. So that's one thing. You don't have enough material. Most of the stuff is done in other countries. We've outsourced it from Europe and the United States to third to developing countries with less, with lower labor environmental standards. That's why we did it. And it's cheaper. And then we said that, you know, because of technology, the prices came down for all of these materials or for these, uh, but that's not the case. It's because we outsource it to places that don't, that don't have any restrictions on, it, on how they're produced, which lowered the cost. And the third and most important thing is when the guy was talking about this, this uh, I think his name's and I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll put a link. He said that when he went to some conferences to talk to policymakers in Europe and he showed them, he brought up the subject of uh, the lack of actual material, that the materials needed to do what you want to do simply don't exist. They didn't know that. <laughs> that's what he said. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is true, because I believe that the political class just says stuff and will and, and, and has a view because they have no real world experience. They're very credentialed people. They have no real world experience. They've never been to a mine. They've never done any of this stuff. And so, well, we want to do this and it's the right thing to do. So therefore it will happen because we are good people and we said it's gonna happen. You know, you, 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 you people laugh when I talk like that or like it's childlike. Yes, that's how we think, Lisa. According to this gentleman, he said they were totally unaware of the lack of material or the supply chain and the ability to produce the material necessary to complete the transition. They heard him and they just continued on. They didn't acknowledge it. So this is what you're dealing with. That's why it's heads we win, tails we win more. So here's Cadelco talking about the drop in production and why, you know, um, they cited project delays and difficulties in developing projects that would help sustain future output as reasons behind the ex expected output drop. Um, they're not gonna be able to grow production. This is one of the largest copper producers in the world. So where's, where's all this material coming from? Not to mention the fact that if you follow exploration like I do if you follow junior mining and exploration companies and just peruse the various discussions that people have around these things the grades of ore that we are finding are going down the head grades in the mines are going down so you're having to move more material to get less ore so yeah there's going to be an attempt to have this transition that's going to run smack dab into 
the um, material deficiencies. And so all that time that will be wasted, all that effort and money that will be wasted trying to do that instead of having a rational energy policy that's well thought out and I'm, I, is, is going to be wasted. So anyway, we look forward to higher copper prices over this decade. Here we go. Here's some more. You know, we had riots in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Here we have Egypt now rationing electricity to pay for grain. Egypt starts rationing electricity to conserve foreign reserves as grain prices rise. So it's starting, folks. Dominoes falling everywhere. Okay. And this will give, you know, if you're in the EU, this is going to give an opportunity or the US for this multipolar world to further develop because when people are desperate, what if the Russians come and say, hey, we'll, we'll supply you with grain or another, you know, they're already doing work there with the four reactors. What, what, what is the EU doing to solve these problems? Do they even, are they even aware of it? Are they going, they're going to have their own food problems there. What's the U.S. doing about this? What kind of unrest is going to lead to, you know, is Egypt even a sustainable country? It has a hundred million people that relies on this small strip along the Nile for its sustenance. It doesn't have the ability to supply enough food for its population. And so when food prices go up, this is a problem for countries like this. This is what I talk about the social and economic upheaval that we can expect throughout the world for the next who knows how many years. And these are going to have knock-on effects also. This is going to cause political realignments. This can cause all kinds of unforeseen things. And so when somebody writes me and says, man, I really wish this video, I like these videos a lot better when they just talked about investing. Well, what do you think we're talking about here, guys? This stuff all plays into it. You know, if Egypt blows up and let's say there's a revolution there because of food, which already happened in the Arab Spring, if you remember, and they had to use a lot of force in Egypt to put it down. What if you get a radical Islamic government that takes over and they decide to shut the Suez Canal down? Now, what do you do? How much trade, global trade goes through the Suez Canal? What does that do to supply chains? I mean, people need to think about these things because they are all risks that are out there. And these, these were caused by uh, poor policymaking or inability to look at things for the way they are, not the way they, some people want them to be. So here we go, getting rid of internal combustion engines by 2035. I think that's, if I remember correctly, that's what California said they're going to do. But here's Gavin Newsom coming out in the last couple of days. Don't charge that electric vehicle. California braces for energy shortage through Labor Day. Um, I think there was a video out there where Gavin Newsom was talking about this. I mean, this is just complete insanity. Uh, you can't even handle the loads that you have now. Uh, if you know anything about transmission and distribution line, uh, how they build them, how they're designed, you can't just stick millions and millions of electric vehicles onto the grid. It's not designed for that. Uh, especially like in your neighborhood. I've said that before, the utility designs, the infrastructure and the transformer sizing for the typical loads for a home. And then if you stick an electric vehicle in every other garage, it, it can't handle it. And so the question is, is who pays for that to upgrade that? No one's discussing that. 
well, the rate payer will pay. These are monopoly utilities. And so they get a return based on their spending. So they go and say, okay, well, um, the customer base has all these electric vehicles. We have to make a $30 billion investment. And then the utility commission looks at it and says, okay, fine. Uh, it's cost plus 10%. That's how it's done. And so you'll pay. And that's fine as long as everybody understands that and agrees with it. But the current grid is not set up for this. So again, we constantly have political folks doing things for political reasons to get political clout, to get reelected, whatever they're trying to do, position themselves like Gavin Newsom. He thinks he's going to be president one day, which is possible, I'm sure. And so he's always going to be playing for these constituencies. He's constantly going to put the cart in front of the horse. You have to rebuild the infrastructure first to accommodate all these electric vehicles. You don't have the ability to charge electric vehicles and then on hot days have people's air conditioning running. It's not, the grid can't handle it. It's not built for that. It was built under other assumptions that didn't include all of these new additions of demand. It's not me saying that. It's not me being mean. That's just the way it is. And so this is, you couple this with the lack of, I mean, this is really going to get, it's really going to be chaotic. And so when you have chaos, when you have political desires, overriding economic desires, when you have things done by fiat, this creates um, disruptions. This causes discombobulations in economies. And this provides opportunities for us as speculators. This is why shipping now is, is really bouncing because We've put all these sanctions on and then the people, you know, this is what humans do. They look for ways around things. They're working in their own self-interest. And so, yes, okay, product, we banned uh, Russian oil or whatever. And so the oil gets sent to India and refined into gasoline, jet fuel, and diesel, and then set on product tankers to Europe. So product tanker uh, day rates go up because now we have these increased amount of transport voyage times and, and miles that weren't there before and we have insufficient transportation and so you have a spike in rates so that's how when i'm talking about being a speculator you can take advantage of these things and these things are only caused not because of ec economic decisions because people for the most part make economic decisions in their own self-interest but because political political people have inserted themselves in here and caused these disruptions to the normal way of doing business, supply chains, what have you. This is another example. So we will see, um, like I said, a lot of people want to comment on these things. They don't have any background or, or space to do that. And that's fine. You can, people say all kinds of stuff. I listen, you know, to people all the time that don't know what they're talking about. And I politely listen to them. It uh, doesn't mean they're going to be right. And if you're making, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, if you're making investment slash speculating decisions based on incorrect information, you are not going to be successful for the most part. That's my view. Uh, last slide here. Here's the global stocks to use ratio for wheat. You can see it's been in decline, um, what they're forecasting. Uh, these are pretty significant drops. Um, like I said, you, this is not good in my view. So you have increasing population and less carryover, you're going to have higher prices. So 
we'll see. You know, it's kind of ties back to what I was talking about Egypt, North Africa, what happened during the previous Arab Spring, which was based on high food prices. I think we're going to be heading for that again, but we'll see. And but this time, I think you're going to see possibly in the West. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate the patronage, the viewership. Appreciate the subscribers to the newsletter, the Patreon. Uh, if you are interested in subscribing, link is below in the show notes. You can click on it and you can have a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter where we try to identify opportunities to take advantage of the things that we discuss in these videos. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.